Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome, Chris Fields, to the Chase the Vase podcast. Chris, you are the first as a firefighter. You know, like you guys get to carry around the real equipment, man, you know, and, and it I was interesting. It. We in Mesa, you know, I'm a police officer. You're a firefighter. We had this hose dragger gun <laughs> toter. We had this whole fight between each other. I mean, oh, yeah. absolute respect for one another and what you guys do. Thank you for coming on. That's just like the the basic, like the, the uh, that's not even who you are today. I'd say hopefully I can do justice. I won't be the last firefighter you have on. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is most people will know you through a picture. Yes, sir. Right? Probably, yes, sir. in my opinion, because I'm, I'm, I'm older now, too. I'm, we're probably around the same age. But one of the most iconic pictures ever to be produced. Would you agree? Or most impactful? You know, it was one of those things I tried to brush off and say, yeah, yeah. but you know, I've, over years, I've come to accept the fact that, you know, if I'm a person on the outside looking in, yes, it would, I would consider it a, you know, a, especially for the Oklahoma City bombing, an iconic photo from that and a, uh, and an impactful photo. And that would have been, you know, that's just a, uh, you're holding a child that's going to be impactful, you know, no matter what the, the events that led up to it. So I, I've come to just to accept that and, you know. So let's dive in, man. Let's talk about yeah. it real quick, if you don't mind. I yeah. know that this iconic photo that you were holding a one-year-old child mm -hmm. during a rescue operation, right? It was April 19, 1995. And, and I know most people out there are like, man, I can hear Chris's his accent, he's got to be from Oklahoma or down south somewhere, right? And, yep. and tell us, man, this was this was in relation to the Oklahoma City bombing, domestic terrorism, probably one of the first ones that we had, right? I think it was. I think it was the first, you know, to uh, first domestic terrorism here on American soil. So. So if you don't mind, I mean, what was the what was going on? Like, I'm sure you can remember the whole day. I want to hear about it. If you don't mind, I want you to share with our audience. And then I want to get in. I know that you've told this story, but there's a reason I want to hear it. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I can remember it as plain as yesterday. It was a, uh, well, yesterday was a Wednesday and it was on a Wednesday. It was Wednesday, April 19th, uh, 1995. Got up, went to work that morning. Shift changes at 7 a.m. But I was one of those guys. At that time in 95, I had 10 years on the job. I was a captain. I was a junior officer at Fire Station 5. And I'm just one of those guys, you know, shift change was at seven, but if I wasn't there by 545 or six, they knew I was late. I mean, that's just, that's just the way I patterned myself and I did it for my whole 30, 31 year career. But so I got there at, you know, 545, 6 a.m. drinking coffee with the other shift, exchanging information. And and the reason I can always remember it's a Wednesday, because when you're at this fire station, each station has, you have different uh, responsibilities around the station to maintain it for the each day of the week that you're working. Wednesday was yard day. So I just remember uh, the other guys and girls out doing the yard maintenance and me and the other two captains were uh, kind of just discussing the day, what we were going to do, you know, for the day and distinctly remember uh, the station officer mentioning, you know, after breakfast, we'd go out and talk training. We were going to do some, do, do some training. And I remember him talking about it being nine o'clock in the morning. You know, he said, well, it's nine now. And it was just right after that's when, um, busy station Were you guys, I mean, was, were you used to activity or? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, we were at one of the busier stations. I was at a station that had a, uh, engine, a rescue ladder and a hazardous materials unit. And I was the officer on the hazardous materials unit. We were fortunate 
that we had a chief that says, give me all the people I can get on a fire alarm. So on, even on the hazmat unit, we got to make house fires and stuff. Uh, I can say that now because I'm retired. Probably wasn't accepted by the by the big boys, but our chief would say, you know, if it's a house, you, you come with your engine and ladder. So yeah, we were we were in a uh, different part of town, kind of a, had this nice little edge to it. it had this rougher, it's like like every like every community, you know. We were downtown, so that always a little more intense downtown. Like I say, around nine o'clock, we felt it, we heard it. The station, the windows rattled at the station. It felt like the station shook. We have a we we were very fortunate. We had a uh, board and ice cream plant right across the street from the station who always took care of us. Well, we thought a uh, and had a train yard. We thought the train had actually derailed is what we thought. And so we went out the east door of the station to look and didn't see anything. Look back to the south, downtown Oklahoma City. We were 15 blocks from the Murrah building and uh, 15 blocks north. And so we uh, we saw the plume of smoke, large black plume of smoke uh, from all the car fires that were going on. And we just immediately what we call self-dispatched ourselves. So the engine, all, all three rigs, we just dispatched ourselves. And some of the little interesting caveats to the story were, one of the guys, we had to come out of the station, make a hairpin turn on this cul-de-sac to head back north. And we had to stop and pick up one of our guys. He was just, he had the ear muff protection on. He was weed eating. He just thought it was a Tinker Air Force Base is not too far from us. He thought it was jets doing flybys and it was like a sonic boom because he felt the rush of wind. He felt his shirt move. Wow. But he just kept on uh, weed eating because he thought it was... 15 blocks away. Yes. Yes, sir. And uh, so... Uh, we stopped and hit the air horn and got him in. And uh, so got to the scene. I'll move ahead so we can get you. Know, the first time we saw the building, and I always say this, and it's no disrespect to the 168 lives that were lost and the over 700 injuries. But if you would have, the first time we saw that building, if you would have told me, there's only, and I use the word only just for this story. If you're going to tell me there would be only 168 lives taken, I would have said, there's no way. We're not going to find one live person in there. Really? So, and why was yeah? That? I mean, it's just why? I mean, it was nine. It was nine stories pancaked down on top of it. It looked like it just a. It looked like somebody something just took a a bite out of the middle of the building from the ninth story all the way down, and it was just a big C shape cut out, you know, and then the big crater out front where the truck was parked, you know, and a lot of people don't know it was Timothy McVeigh who did a I think it was like a five thousand pound fertilizer bomb. He'd built in this truck and detonated and everything. So, and what wasn't he had accomplished with Terry Nichols? Yes, he had accomplished Terry Nichols, and they were getting there and seeing the ATF was located on the ninth floor. So he was getting his revenge for April nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, at the Waco standoff. That's yes. why he picked April nineteenth, real quick. And and when he got caught later, you know, they had him caught for hours, and he know he was the bomber. Uh, a local highway a highway patrolman pulled him over for no tag on his car. This is nineteen ninety five when you couldn't carry weapons. Well, he got out and he had a gun. So they were taking him to jail for illegal possession of a firearm and no tag on his car. So he was sitting in a little county jail in Oklahoma for hours just on those charges. And then when fun, a sketch finally came out that this is who they were looking for, this county called and said, uh, we've got this guy sitting in our jail. So that's how he got caught for no tag on his car. That's why he wow. got pulled over in the first place. They're telling how far gone, you know, how far away he would have got. So Good props to the yeah. highway patrol. Exactly. Throw that out there. Yeah. And that, that highway patrol retired and ended up becoming the sheriff of that county and everything so you know couldn't write it into a movie any better for you know the way it worked out but uh, so chris if you don't mind me asking like as you're arriving on scene right i know you have all these thoughts going on mm -hmm. and, and being in battle i mean both of us have seen trauma we've seen this where right. did your mind take you right then and there as you're approaching as you're jumping out of the truck what were you thinking well you know at first we were kind of thinking 
as, as firefighters do, we were thinking, well, we weren't thinking about a bomb, you know, at that time. Uh, we were thinking, really, I think we were thinking the main thing was thinking a natural gas explosion, you know. Uh, we were thinking, we knew there was lots of construction going on. We thought maybe a, a welder's torch, you know, acetylene. We didn't, we didn't know. And so I think we were mainly leaning to a, uh, like I say, a natural gas explosion. So we were, you know, especially on hazmat, we're talking about getting monitoring equipment, setting up a perimeter and then all that kind of stuff. But pretty quickly that went by the wayside. We were getting assignments to do all these different things. We didn't know it was actual. I mean, there was probably quite rumors floating around, but me and my crew in the part of the building we were at, we never knew there was a bomb involved until they evacuate, told everybody to evacuate because they thought they, over the radio, they said they thought they found a second explosive device. We were all like, a second device? We didn't know there was a first device. But what it was, it was we some dummy device. We would have handled that different. We, we yeah, would have handled yeah. that response differently. Yeah. It was a panic. Everybody evacuating. It was tough. Some firefighters and police and ambulance were actually talking to people that were trapped, but they were given a direct order, you know, to leave. So some of them had to leave these people. As bad as that was, on the other hand, it was a blessing a little bit because it gave us a chance to step back, regroup, get more of a plan together for, you know, getting groups together and sections together and kind of incident command was pretty new then. So to get the incident command system implemented, so things went a lot smoother, which it did. It ended, that, up a, ended up being a that being a dummy searching over, like searching the same areas over and over. Right, there was more right. strategy right. to it. Okay, yeah. yeah, gave us a chance, and, and communications were horrible, as you can know. In 1995, it wasn't the best. You know, uh, cell phones were. If you had one, you had you were fortunate to have the big, you know, bag phone. So they weren't. Like you might have a little flip phone. Ended up being a dummy device up on the ninth floor of the ATF deal, something they had collected at a scene or something, just a dummy device. And it was probably some old dumb fireman walked up there and not knowing it was a dummy device, you know, but anyway, so we were um, probably 30 minutes into the, uh, we'd helped the police officers. A lady was trapped in the basement. So we helped get her out. We were going to another part of the building and I still don't, I still can't say where he came from. I don't know if he came out of a door around the corner. All I know is there was a, a gentleman named John Avery. I found out, I know him well now, but at the time I didn't know he was a police officer off duty and uh, that had responded down there. And he was just like, he appeared right in front of me and he said, I have a critical infant. And for whatever reason, I immediately said, you know, here, I'll, I'll take her. You know, I don't know why my reaction wasn't to say, you know, there's an ambulance around the corner or, you know, hey guys, you know, here's some paramedics or something. I just, I said, here, I'll take her. The first thing I did was, uh, was search her for any, you know, check her for any uh, signs of life, which she didn't have any. She had an open skull fracture and uh, she had her, I had to clear her airway. She had a lot of concrete dust in her airway and I cleared that. And so she was probably alive after the explosion. If she's got a, she's at least breathing that in, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, probably just for, for a little bit, probably. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or it just got, forced down her because of the force of the of the blast, uh, which I've read on that years later, trying to comprehend the, the magnitude of that blast. When you hear police officers 30 something miles away, radio and their dispatch asking them what that explosion was because they, the ground shook where they were. I mean, that's how violent it was. As I was walking with her, I saw an ambulance. So I just walked across the street to this ambulance, I told the paramedic, exact same words John Avery told me. I said, I have a critical infant. You know, I didn't say she was deceased. I said, I have a critical infant. And I always tell people, I didn't know, you know, I didn't find out until 11 o'clock that evening when we got back to the station that there was even a photo taken. And I never saw it until the next morning. But once I saw the photo, I knew exactly where I was at, where I was standing and what I was thinking. It was when I told him I had a critical infant, he looked at me that the ambulance was full. They had a person on the floor, up on the bench seat and on a cot, on a stretcher. And then there was four or five victims laying around on uh, backboards on the concrete around him. And he said, 
well, hold on a second. Let me get a blanket. We're not going to put that baby on the ground. That was his exact words. And so I'm just standing there looking at her, waiting for him to get a, a blanket out of the ambulance. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, not realizing, you know, from seeing the building, I think, but not really putting it all together, thinking in my mind, somebody's world is getting ready to be turned upside down. You know, I had, a, she was one, which I didn't know until later, but I knew she was, I had a son at home that was two. So I knew they were relatively close in age. And she had just turned one year old the day before, April 18th. But I just thought somebody's world is getting ready to be turned upside down. Not knowing in my mind that that emotion, that feeling, that probably same thought was going to be replayed 167 other times that day by other, you know, rescuers, whether it be fire, police, ambulance. So, you know, I said, so uh, gave her to the paramedic and went and caught up with my crew. And uh, they were in the middle of uh, digging a lady out. That was probably around 1030, 1045. And we were on other parts of the building. They did a lot of uh, rescue the rest of the day, got some people out. For us, it was pretty much that was when we got that lady out, she was talking to us and we got her out of this pit area up on, you know, hoisted her up on a backboard out to the ambulance. Talking to her, that was the last live connection we had with anybody and took the rest of the day. And then we got released to go back to the station at 11 o'clock that night. So it was pretty much a recovery mode for us the rest of the day with uh, search dogs. And they brought in live scent dogs, cadaver dogs, you know, picking up, getting scents. And uh, so it was just one of those, you know, one of those things you can, it's so cliche to say it's something you can never prepare for. You can do all the training yeah. in the world. Matter of fact, we were, we were getting new. We were trying to get into the USAR stuff, urban search and rescue teams. And so we were doing all this, we'd started all this different training and some of us had, you know, to, you know, breaching and shoring for all this, uh, you know, we, we shore and we'll shore up a car if it's in a car wreck and it's leaning. It's totally different than thinking you've got a nine story building you got to try to support so you can crawl into a little cavern to look for people, you know. So I don't think anybody was actually prepared for what we saw. It was a great effort. And uh, I think, you know, we couldn't. Uh, it's one of those deals where even like, you know, in your profession, you want to make a bad situation better. And those were our citizens. I think that was the only that was the one of the hardest things, I think, for guys and girls was we felt that we, you know, we didn't get there and make a bad situation better. And now the people, the citizens will tell us, you know, we did. Even the ones that we got their loved ones out that were deceased will tell you, hey, you did what you were supposed to do. You got our people, you got our loved ones back to us. Well, I'm going to defend the officer really quick. I'm going I'm to give you his brain. I, I know 100% if I'm, if I'm in a medical situation, I'm turning that baby over to a firefighter. You know, like we're not, as a police officer, we're trained a little bit in medical. Right. You know that CPR and, and the basics like yeah every other but you guys you guys handled that on a daily basis man so the well and that's that's exactly what uh sergeant avery um john has has told me and i was actually the third person that he approached with bailey saying i've got a critical infant and everybody else just and it's not getting on them they just they would say you know either i saw some firemen over there or i saw an ambulance over here and so i i, I didn't know that till probably just about five years ago talking with him that he said i was the third person that he approached and wow. that uh I finally, I was the one that said, you know, here, I'll take her. So, yeah. Well, so 168 people died that day. So I, I know, I mean, this is kind of a, I know the answer to this, but I want, I want to just talk to you, man. Cause I know we, that's PTSD is, is different for everybody. Everybody who thinks they have PTSD do not. There are right. qualifiers that are basic qualifiers that, that help you identify whether you have PTSD. Mm -hmm. There, are, There's a difference between the disorder and an incident. There's differentiation there. But I want to know, this is a major deal. How'd you cope with it? Like I was taught to when I came on the job, just suck it up and push it down. And, you know, 
I was, you know, I'm, I'm 56 years old. So I'm from that era of, you know, you know, suck it up with them. If it was sports, your job, you know, if it's sports and you're hurt, they'll say, eh, you can lay there and cry about it. Somebody take your spot or you can get up, suck it up. And it was the same thing. And that's the, that's the way I was, I say, raised on the fire department by these old grizzly non-mask wearing smoke eaters, you know, that, uh, and it wasn't that they didn't have sympathy or empathy or a heart, but that's just the way they were trained. They were that's the way they were trained. And it's just, it was just a generational deal. And that was their deal. They were saying, you got to suck it up and move on. I can't have you thinking about a call at 10 in the morning when I'm counting on you to be there for me at one in the afternoon on another call. You just had to, you had to let it, you know, let it go. That's the way it was back then. And and that's what I did for, that's what most of us did. We did have a critical incident stress team, CISD team, you know. The debrief team. Um, yeah. And I wasn't real big on it. And, you know, in, in a way... And I've talked to so many people since then, and, and I'm I'm past that now. But I used to struggle with, as I was struggling, thinking, God, how many people did I let down by? Because I told my guys and girls, I said, hey, we have to go through this debriefing deal. I'm not going to say anything, but if y'all want to talk, feel free. Well, what did I do when I was a new firefighter? I used to do what my leader or my officer did. I wanted to model what they did, you model, know. Model. And so, uh, so a lot of times I think, I wonder how many people, you know, but I've talked to all these people since, and we're all good. But it was just one of the things later that I struggled with. But at first, a lot of things I struggled with were the being singled out, you know, especially in firefighting world. It's such a team oriented thing, you know, and um, to be singled out because what I did was done a hundred times around the building that day or over the next month, probably as they continue to take people out. But, you know, mine just happened to get caught by a camera, you know, by an amateur photographer. But with that being said, I had nothing but the utmost support from every guy and girl in the Oklahoma City Fire Department. Probably wouldn't have continued doing the interviews that I did afterwards if it wasn't for their support and them backing me. So that was a huge part. But it's still, it's that irrational guilt you have, which is just as heavy as rational <laughs> guilt you should take on, you know, for things. But uh, it was that, and it was being the uh, being the last one to hold, you know, Aaron's baby. Aaron, I'm sorry, that's Bailey's mother, Aaron, which we're still great friends today. So, you know, being the last one to hold her child and then watching Aaron, it's another thing I took on as irrational guilt. You know, it wasn't anything I planned or did, but it's just my brain taken over. And, and then the fact watching Aaron not be allowed to grieve privately. She, I mean, they had to have law enforcement run people off from the funeral. They just, I mean, it was just, you know, it was just a, it was just a horrible, it was horrible for everybody, but it was for me because I was so close to Aaron and Bailey's situation. You know, I'm sure others went through stuff also, but I just saw this firsthand, you know. So I took that on as a as responsibility that I was responsible for it. So I felt like I needed to be there for Aaron like a big brother. So so between trying to make sure I was doing my job at work, doing my job at home, taking care of uh, Aaron, when she needed, you know, if she was having a bad day just to talk to her or if she was going to do an interview, she asked if I'd do it with her. So I was really like, you know, I felt responsible. I felt like I should do it. And uh, that was after meeting her, by the way. We met her the next day. I had a reporter call me, friendly reporter from local, and said, hey, Chris, would you want to meet Aaron Allman? That's Bailey's mom. And my first reaction was, no, I did. I had no idea. Why would I want to meet her? I don't know what she's going to say, do, how she's going to react. So Cynthia was reporting. I said, Cynthia, I said, I just can't do it. And she said, okay. She said, I understand, Chris. She said, she had called. She was wanting to meet you. And I said, whoa, what well, changes everything then? I said, that's yeah. she's one of our citizens that yeah, changed everything. So we went and met her, me and Sergeant Avery. And I always tell people the funny thing about it. I've got video of it. And you can see we're standing there and here's a 20 year old single mom that just lost her one year old child. And she's comforting these, you know, supposed to be burly, tough first responders. She's comforting us out in the front yard, uh, 
So it was just, uh, I was honored to be, I guess, if I'm going to be linked with somebody, I was honored to be linked with Aaron because she was just so strong through the whole thing. So, but um, I just kept pushing all this stuff away and going to work and, and doing my job and coming home and thought, I, and I was doing a pretty good job. We all know ourselves. We know when we're not doing things right or feeling right. And, and um, I started having these little doubts, little bouts of depression, anxiety, you know, just kind of hypervigilance and, and uh, anger. I mean, just, you know, me and my wife would fight over, I mean, just this dumbest stuff. And it was me initiating it just because I felt like it, you know, just angry about everything. I did a pretty good job of, of hiding it at work from my leaders and the people that were working for me. I wanted to, you know, and we're talking, uh, we're talking six, six, seven years down the road. I'm still working this magic, you know, what I think is magic of hiding it well. And my wife, she started, she could notice, she started noticing and bless her heart. She didn't, I think spouses now learn how to deal with it more back then. She was like, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to tip the scales. I don't want to. Well, it got to the point to where she had no choice. And she just told me, she said, you either go get help or you get out. Well, I'm Chris Fields. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, yeah. I've got this under control. So I and, I, I, and I'm a hero. Yeah. This yeah, is I my say, identity. So we, we, we got out. I got out and uh, we were separated over uh 16, we were separated 16 months total. I mean, there's a few times I'd come back for a couple of days and it's just like, mm. so even, but it was 16 months total. And still, you know, there was a lot of people on the job that really didn't even know. I did such a good job of going to the work and keeping up this happy-go-lucky, I'm the funny guy, Chris Fields at the fire. You know, that was just who I was. And so there was a lot of people that didn't even know it worked. The home life was like it was. So, you know, by this time I've got two sons when this was going on, they're both 27 and 22 now, but they were 16 and 10 back then or something like that. And uh, like I say, it was just me just alienating, humiliating my family and my friends. Every chance I got, not stepping up, doing the right thing, extramarital affair, you know, just humiliating, you know, all my friends that did reach out. Those were the ones I was pushing away. The ones I was hanging with were the ones that were in the same shit show I was in. Yes. Telling me, hey, you do what you want to do, you know. I know what you feel. I know what you're going through. So I'm getting my, I guess, my marital and my life advice from firefighters <laughs> in a strip bar in the afternoon drinking beer. That's where I'm getting my, you know, my, my that's where my life coaches are. And it showed. It got to the point to where, you know, the the drinking and, and the Xanax I was taking for the anxiety to, and the practice to help me get through so I could wake up the next morning and go to work and be that same guy. It started to take its toll and it got to the point where, you know, suicidal ideation really never sat down and said, I'm going to plan this out. I'm going to take a gun. I'm going to do this. But I, you know, I've made enough calls over the years by this time, you know, accidental overdoses by taking a little too much of Xanax with a little too much crown oil. You knew where it was going. Yeah. I was, I was, I was saying that uh, getting my, my life coaching and my marital and life advice from other firefighters who in the same shit show I was, you know, sitting in a strip bar during the day, drinking beer. That's where I was getting my advice from, which I, highly do not recommend to anybody. <laughs> so I know you talked about Xanax and you talk about alcohol. How much did that play a role in your PTSD and kind of just fueling that? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, it was, and I always like to say this too, and I'm glad you brought that up because now I can say of all the dumb things I did when I wasn't being the father and husband, I try to tell people this, you can't go back and just say, well, I, I did it because of PTSD. Now, they were conscious decisions that I made totally on me. But you get to a point to where the repercussions, the consequences do not matter anymore. You just want whatever you're thinking or feeling to go away. Thank you. So if that means you're going to drink 
and take your pills or do whatever, and that's going to lead to more screwing up, then so be it. It's not the fact that because of PTSD, or for me, I would say, uh, it wasn't the PTSD, a little, you know, voice in my head saying, go be a jerk, go be an ass, go be, you know, it, it, they were all conscious decisions, but the, the, the alcohol and the pills is what helped me get to sleep to forget what an ass I was so I could get some. And return and do it again tomorrow. I do want to clarify or, or make sure. So do you, I know you were diagnosed after this event with PTSD, but do you think that this one event was it? Or do you think it was a total effort of everything that, that just built up and this was that breaking point? That's exactly where I was getting to. Exactly what it is. It was a, uh, when I got to the point to where I said, you know, if I take enough of this Xanax and drink enough of this alcohol that if I don't wake up, that everybody can, you know, chart a new path, start over. And when I did, and this always kind of gets me that because I called my wife that morning and I said, and we're talking 16 months here that I've been a total piece of crap. And I said, I'm ready. I want to come home. And she said, her first response was, come on, you mm. know. And so I think as I either laying there, or, you know, doing whatever after that phone call, I was thinking, I think I can do this. It's going to be okay. I thought, because if, if, you know, if God gave her the grace to forgive me, then good Lord, that, what else do I need? I mean, you know, I'm probably going to, there'll be some friends and some other people that won't have that same grace. That's not what matters, you know? And, uh, and I got to the point to where I didn't care what people thought about me anymore, you know, uh, which is a big part of it. You know, that's, that's, that's where you get that strength to reach out and all that. You got to get to a point to where you don't give a rat about what people think about you. Love it. And uh, so what was that? I, I coming back to the wife, man, that's, that's tough, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's that, uh, the whole repentance thing, babe. Because people don't understand like in addiction and in PTSD, our moral compass is broke. <laughs> that, that thing does not point north. Oh. Right. And I look at it sometimes I was like, where, where am I going? This isn't the, this isn't who I am. And, right? that, and that's exactly what I was when I, the next morning, once I established that I was still here, I thought, okay. And at that time I was I'm 56. Now I was 40 something you know, you're 47, 48 then maybe. And I thought there is no way this is my purpose in life. There's no way I've been given the wife I have, the two sons I have, the career I have. And this is how, this is my purpose. I thought there's no way. And I always tell people I'm blessed beyond measure now that I get to go speak about it. And I have a little show we do. We talked about, we'll talk about later. But that what when I said, that's not my purpose, that's not what I was thinking. In my mind, I was thinking my purpose is to be a good father, a good husband, a good friend. That is a purpose. Not everybody's going to get to go tell their story and speak on a stage. And that's it. But I knew what my purpose was. And it was, and it, I wasn't fulfilling that. And that was, like I said, to be the, to be the husband and the father and the friend I needed to be. So got back with the wife. We got home. I went and got treatment. I went to a facility out in California and it was uh, diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, depression, came back here and stayed and followed up with a clinician here named Kathy Thomas, who She's my superhero. She's probably not four foot 11, but man, she's a giant in my eyes. She introduced me to EMDR and that was huge for me. It's not for everybody. Some people doesn't work. And I always, same thing. I feel like I always have to say this to people. I would never downplay anything. If it works for you, just like some medicine works for you that won't work for me. You know, some things are traumatic to me that aren't traumatic. Everybody's different. I hate to hear people. Some people go, oh, that EMDR, that's that psycho. And now that ain't, you know, I'm going, if it works, what's it matter? You know, what's it it matter if it's talking to a, go talk to a donkey twice a day and it works, who cares? You know, I mean, it's just whatever works for you. So, but to your point, just a few minutes ago, 
in that EMDR, because when I was doing all this, thinking about this therapy and, and counseling, in my mind, I'm going, okay, I was beyond, I think I felt like I had dealt with the bombing and the photo. And I, now I was in this place trying to live with myself mm. and forgive myself and live with myself for all the things I'd done to my family and my friends. So I thought, okay, I got to get through this. Well, once I started the counseling and the EMDR, Lord, it opened up a cash box of thing always back to childhood trauma to, uh, you know, uh, losing firefighters, some brothers on the job in the line of duty, you know, uh, made a car wreck once with a good friend of mine, firefighter off duty, him and his 12 year old son were killed in this car wreck. We made it. And, you know, just, just all these things and, uh, you know, and family things. And so it's not just, I think that's what a lot of people forget. You're not just a cop. I'm not just a firefighter, man. We're humans. We got families. We got lied. We have, we have cars that don't start. We have bills that might get behind. We have, you know, we have things that happen that are stressful in life. And then you go to the police, get your cruiser. or I go to the fire station and we take on these other people's traumas that we're dealing with, you know, and it was just a bunch. But how do you tell the superheroes that? I, I'm agreeing with you, Chris. I remember so many incidents, man, that were traumatic in our, just, just on my squad. Babies dying, CPR, traffic accidents, deaths, house fires. You just learn how to condition yourself. But the problem is you go and sit in those briefings the next day and sergeant, commander, chief, whatever, they're sitting there saying, hey, Brock, Chris, how you doing, man? And the first thing that comes out, I'm good. I'm I'm good. It's it's not affecting me. And but inside, you're like, man, should I say something? That it kept me up all night last night. I all can't right. sleep. I'm taking these opioids to sleep, or I'm drinking to sleep. Like, is anybody else going through this, or is it just yeah. me? Right? How do we get to these men? How do we get to men that wear the badge? We have to be stronger than everybody else because we're mm -hmm. doing that job. If you're talking to some law enforcement, firefighters, EMS, doctors that see this trial, what would you tell them? Yeah, you know, it's tough. It's um, and, and things have changed so much. I think it's the ones that are our age and have many years on the job as we we did or have that we have to. That's the ones we really have to because they're getting so much better now about, and it starts, you know, like Oklahoma city now, when they have a rookie class, they take a couple of days or at least a day. I wish it was more, but even a day, they talk about mental health. You know, when I came on the job, there was nothing mental health. It was all physical. You had to be in the best physical shape of your life. And uh, nobody told you, you don't even watch uh, when you're in rookie school and you're a firefighter, all they're showing you is these great rescues on camera from this department. They're showing you being lauded as hero. They don't show you the, the downside. And real quick, I had a good friend of mine whose son got on the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. And the first day they meet, they watch like two hours of video of nothing but mangled, nasty car wrecks, decapitation. He said, okay, they didn't tell I'm out. He didn't do it, which I don't hold that against him. No. I say better to find out now to know. But he he walked away and said, this is not for me. And uh, his dad was looked. I said, I told him, I said, dude, that is, you know how much it took for him to do that? Oh, that's the kind of people you do want to be that strong. But, you know, that's why I tell people that uh, uh, you just have to be that. I always tell people as heroic as our professions are labeled to seem to me, it's more heroic to be that person that does, you know, step up and, and reach out. And the, one of the questions we get a lot is, how do you tell somebody that admits they need treatment, but they don't want to go? I said, well, that's what thing you can't make them go. But what we can do, all we do is offer hope. That's what we do. We say, we've been there. We waited till the wheels fell off. Don't wait till the wheels fall off. And then you can, you can be where we're at. Are we hunky-dory every day and everything great? No, we still have tough days. I don't have any bad days, but I have some tough days. And so we just kind of offer hope to say, 
and that's what we tell people. We're not going to come in and say you're not going to you're not going to experience. I can't tell everybody they're not going to have PTSD. I can say you are, you aren't. But I will tell you, in our line of work, you will experience trauma. You'll take on other people's trauma. You'll, you know, that's on top of your own personal dealings at home or personal life trauma. I said, but you don't, our point is you don't have to wait till the wheels fall off. And if you go talk to somebody early enough, avoid what we, you know, two of the guys on my trauma behind the badge team, you know, put guns to their head and pull the trigger and they're still here. And because we did a show the other night on uh, the positive side of trauma, which is talking about PT, PTSD, you know, the growth, post-traumatic stress growth. And, and that's the growth, you know, and the positive side of it is where we're at now getting to do what we do. So, you know, and I've got some senior guys that still call me that haven't retired yet or have retired now. We, we talk. And uh, so I just, I just tell them it's, it's set such a good example you know how you're feeling. Why would you want any, if that is truly your brother or your sister doing that job, why would you want them to go through what you're going through? So speak out, get your help and let them see that as a, uh, one of the guys on our team and other ones, Raul Rivas, he was involved in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. He was the one of the SWAT officers that took down the shooter and everything. And he said one of their big moments is when they were going through debriefings, their captain, their main guy that they all said, that's who we want to be like. He stood up and spoke and told talking about his struggles with that incident and the job and everything. And Raul said, man, that was huge for the department and for those those guys in his group, you know, to to say, if he can do it, we can do it. Yeah. So I think it, it's just like anything. It starts with the leadership of these departments. You know, some people, uh, one chief told our group one time that he goes, no, that kind of stuff needs to start at the bottom not at the top. And our guy responded, said, no, that's a coup. If it starts at the bottom, <laughs> going to the top, that's a coup. That's not a, you know, so it's just a, it's just a change in, in culture and, and leadership, which you can see a definite, a definite trend that direction. So Good. that's all we can hope for. More than anything, I appreciate you uh, just sharing the message. I want to, I want to really quick, I want to make sure Chris that I get into your, your push, what you guys are into. I know you have a podcast. Can you tell us what it's called and a little bit about it? It's a weekly, I don't even know where to call it, a webinar or a Zoom call, whatever it is. But it's uh, called Trauma Behind the Badge. Uh, our website is www.traumabehindthebadge.com. You go there and you can read about us four and then you can register to, you'll get email links every week for the uh, for the webinar, Zoom call, whatever you call it. But it's a uh, it's at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so it'd be what, six o'clock for me, five o'clock for y'all, I guess, right. on uh, every Tuesday night. And uh, you get the link and we have, uh, we cover everything. Our very first show was called Trauma 101. We've just, uh, you know, we've taken some weeks where we've each talked about our own stories. And then we've had different people on there, you know, to, uh, we had a police officer named Jonathan Hickory on there. Who's, you know, all these people have been through some, you know, traumatic events. And like I said, we always have clinicians on there that we've vetted. Some of our own personal clinicians that, that we've vetted. They're there. We have them on the panel sometimes, or we have them as attendees. They're just there in case anybody has a question that we're not going to try to answer answer any, you know, and it's medical. I tell yeah. people it's yeah. So we have them on there and we'll refer to them all the time. It's just a real raw show. It gets it gets emotional at times, uh, but it it is raw. When I say raw, we warn people that, you know, if an F bomb might offend you, you might it's not kid friendly. I'll say that. But it's but it's real. It's like sitting at the fire station around the kitchen table or sitting out back at the police station, you know, before you head out or just wherever you're going to group, you get together and talk. And, nice. uh, but we, we recognize that we've had shows recognizing, you know, dispatchers as first responders because so far, so often they're left out, you know, yeah. uh, nurses, you know, everything that, that involves dealing with, with trauma. We have a military presence 
two of our guys are former military also. So we've had folds, we've had folds of honor and, you know, Polito on there, the major. And so we've had some, uh, it's, it's just a good time. It's a good runs an hour. Sometimes we go an hour and a half. We just let the, it's organic. Sometimes we just let the, let the people take over and let the show take over. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Hey, Chris, I'm proud of you, man. I really am. Thank you, you know, brother. cause I, I know that there was time in our lives where we could have buckled, you know, could have <laughs> oh. buckled. And, and I'm, uh, I'm honored, number one, coming out of the PTSD, number two, coming out of the addiction. I know for mm-hmm. me, that's that's a personal, that's kind of my push, right. you know, that I, I felt like I did have PTSD. I, I mean, I don't know if you ever get rid of it. You just right. manage it. You handle it, right? Right. But uh, I, it was fueled by bad decisions. So I appreciate looking at you as the guy that you are to share that portion of your life for us. Um, number one, give your wife kudos. <laughs> definitely seriously for hanging in there and, and being that person understood that battle right you know right so that was good and and, and, and real quick i, I want to say you know and i always like to encourage people and tell them that i'm not saying that you know like you said i don't know if you ever get rid of it but what you learn is it's not like life's all of a sudden you get counseling and you go to therapy or whatever and you're just great you never i still have some rough days uh some days where i wake up going having trouble forgiving myself on what i do to my family look like i wasted 16 18 two years, you know, months or two years, but instead of using my coping mechanisms I used to use for those bad days, man, I just accept it. I just let it come on. If it means I got to come in here in my office and close the door and weep or cry for a couple hours, and that's what I do. If it means I need to just tell my wife, hey, yeah, we'll go shopping later. I just need a couple hours to veg out and get myself. That's what I do. I don't let it build up. I just, I just let it come and deal with it instead of using, you know, all the vices I used to use to deal with it. That's just where I'm at, man. I appreciate you and the show you do. I love, I love these shows. And, uh, I've got so many favorites now I listen to, and I'll go back and look at some of your previous guests and, and listen Good, to them because you can, I'm always learning. You take something from all of them. So I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And hopefully yeah. we can be in touch and we can, we can share, share, uh, share the love, share some help out there. Yeah, And, and where are you at in Arizona? I'm in Mesa, Arizona. Okay. Yeah. I, how far is that from Tucson? Pretty far? Hour and a half. Oh, okay. I'm hoping to get out Tucson here pretty soon to see my uh, good friends with uh, Jay Dobbins, the old ATF guy that lives there in Tucson, the one that infiltrated the Hells Angels yes. for two years. Yeah. He's a good friend and uh, he's coaching high school football there now. So I think I'm going to get out to Tucson. Man. And, uh, but uh, I'd like to, if I get out that way, man, I'd love to meet up with you. It'd be awesome. It would be an honor. Thank you okay. for being on Chase the Base. Appreciate you. This was Chris Fields. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh, weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.